Hey everybody, welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. I've got a special treat for you today. I have a special guest named David Barman, who is the owner of Epilog LLC, Epilog Lumber Company, logging company, sawmill, and believe it or not, David specializes in urban logging. In fact, he's wrote the book on it, or I should say is writing the book on urban lumber as he successfully funded his book through Kickstarter last year, all about urban lumber. David was a landscaper, turned tree removal guy, turned sawmiller. And what's particularly interesting about David is he's approaching the urban lumber and salvage lumber from a dimensional hardwood perspective. So often when we think of urban lumber, we think of slabs and highly figured stuff, crotch grain, things like that. David went down that path and realized that it was pretty difficult to make a living that way and has now moved to what I would think of as a more traditional dimensional hardwood business. Kind of like the type of lumber that I sell at my day job, except David sources everything from urban and fallen trees. It's a particularly interesting conversation and uh, let's get into it. Folks, I want to welcome to the show David Barman from Epilogue uh, LLC, uh, Epilogue Lumber, Epilogue Sawmill, <laughs> Epilogue Urban Logging. Pick pick your favorite you know epithet for that. He's kind of into it all. If it's urban logging, he's into it. In fact, he's wrote the book or is writing the book on on urban logging. So, David, welcome, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me this morning. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here. Sure. So you are out in Portland, Oregon. Um, so I definitely appreciate it. Uh, as we're recording this, it is oh dark thirty in the morning there. Um, it's in the morning for me, so you can imagine it's in the morning for for David, three hours uh, behind me. But I wanted to. Um, well, I said it. You wrote the book on an urban logging. So let's let's kind of lead there. Tell me about this Kickstarter campaign. Uh, well, I'm sure we'll touch on it several different times, but I'd love to kind of hear. Um, your, your thoughts. How is the book going? Any ideas, you know, when you're going to get it out? I know it's a, it's a tough thing to answer. <laughs> yeah, lots of great questions. So yeah, I'll give you a quick summary about, uh, about the book that I'm uh, current, currently writing um, and a little bit about, uh, yeah, Kickstarter I had last year and, and all that stuff. So um, I am uh, author of a book called Wood from the City, the Urban Lumber Handbook. Uh, last fall, I had a Kickstarter, um, which actually went really well. It was Really, really grateful for, for the success that I had with that. And uh, I'm currently working through the manuscript with my editor. Um, I'm waiting for edits on Chapter 6. Chapter 5 is, I think, pretty much done. And uh, I've started working with my graphic designer and illustrator on a lot of other stuff. It's I, I am self-publishing, and um, it's a daunting task. It's like a book report that <laughs> never ends. Uh, it's I think the manuscripts of the... The rough manuscript's 160 pages. I think the book will end up being about 225 to 250 pages. Mm -hmm. um, I did decide to self-publish because I felt like the quality of the book and content would be a challenge to produce with uh, a traditional publisher. I did get a couple offers, and I felt that I would be doing a lot of ar arguing about what should be in the book, what shouldn't be in the book, and then there's really limited budgets about photography and illustration, so... Sure. Like, well, yeah, at that, that point, sense. I might as well do it myself. But I, I, I wouldn't recommend necessarily self-publishing for for a lot of people. I've got an amazing team of folks. I got a great editor and amazing illustrator and graphic designer. So I feel really grateful 
Um, and I started, I wrote my first book proposal in 2015. So been, I've, been, uh, I've been at it for a while. So the book, you could think of it in kind of three sections. The first chapter is about regular traditional forestry. Where do wood products come from right now? Uh, the middle part of the book is there's a log in your yard. What are we going to do with this thing? Uh, how do we cut this into slabs or boards and, and use it for some kind of building materials? And I, w- I would also characterize that as the urban lumber system of today. And then the last part of the book is how do we intentionally grow trees for lumber in cities? So we go from something where there's haphazard reasons a tree is removed there's no real plan for that. And we go to a system where we're planting, geotagging, and rolling trees and database tracking all of it. And then uh, limiting and pruning and caring for those trees in a way that we're growing high value saw logs. And then we can selectively pull that inventory um, from along the freeway to school, at a commercial business, or, you know, eventually like people in um, private residences can have trees that, that have a home when the tree needs to go away. That's fantastic. Really, really comprehensive. And I, I, you know, really that last chapter, I think, um, is most fascinating to me. I mean, certainly the, uh, the first chapter, that's, that's the world that I live in. Um, uh, second chapter is the one that I've been discovering and having had guests on the show recently, but that kind of, um, city plan, the urban silvicultural, um, effort, is is one that you know it's certainly not a new idea but it's one where there's a lot of people kind of like feeling their way through um or in many instances there's so much that's that's already happened there's so many trees already you know in the city um and and it's kind of like well we'll start this going forward um and there's not really a lot of thought into um the long term uh how did you put it um creating trees that are high value rather than just creating uh, shade. Um, and and then let's, not, sure. let's not downplay that. That's certainly important from the, the overall um, kind of biome of the city. It's important to have those shade elements and the, and, and the nesting areas for the birds and all the undergrowth and all the stuff that rolls into that ecological system. But where I think a lot of these plans fall short <clears throat> is this tree does have value. And if you don't look at it as a saw log, or in some cases, a mulch log, it doesn't actually have value other than that it's lovely, it's a shade tree, it sure looks pretty in that park. And I wish I could say that that was enough, but I'm sorry, it's just not. Um, and, and, and that's how these trees get devalued, that's how these trees get cut down, that's how they get put into a landfill, because no one has actually taken the time to, to, to care for, prune, and grow that tree like a crop. Um, so that's, that's exciting. That's really cool to see that. Um, can't wait to, can't wait to look at this. Um, yeah, me, me neither. I'm hoping by the end of the year that I'll have the, uh, book will be out and I, I'm going to take some time off here, um, late August, September and really get on things. I got another round of uh, photography to do and I'm trying to, um, set up some meetings to visit in some industrial, uh, softwood mills out here, which obviously Doug for, uh, is the king. Sure. Of uh, forest products, I, I would I would add a few things um, to, to follow up to what to what you said, which I, you made a lot of really great points um, about. I, I would say like the urban forestry system today of today, and I would almost even include I would say non timber forest land. So 
that's land that is not managed specifically for timber. And that could, you know, if you think about land anywhere from like an hour and a half near any city. So maybe somebody has five acres, uh, maybe somebody has a half an acre, or it could be trees in downtown. So it would kind of encompass all of those different spaces. So because we don't have a plan for what's going to happen to trees when they go in the ground, whether they seed naturally by themselves or it's something that somebody planted, we're not managing and pruning trees in a way that they have usable lumber. We're also not thinking about how are you going to get this thing out of here um, and where where are we placing these trees. So basically what we have now is an urban lumber system where we're trying to make the best of a bad situation. And what mm-hmm. that's leading to is a shrinking tree canopy. So we don't have an economic incentive to plant more trees. And so myself as a former landscape contractor, I co-owned a small landscape construction construction company for 15 years. I had one job where I was able to plant large form trees. Most people are wanting ornamental trees. They think of trees as a, as a liability. Mm-hmm. So my argument is if we present this as something that's an asset to a property, then we have an incentive to plant those trees. So I, I, in 2015, I worked with a Republican state legislator and uh, I got her really excited about this idea and she dropped a bill to fund an economic study on intentionally growing trees for uh, lumber in cities, and we got four hundred thousand dollars in state funding to, to do some research on that. And I, what I thought was really interesting is, is that I had the most liberal members of the House and Senate, and the most conservative voted for the bill. I think I had five nay votes in that entire building. And basically, it was like kind of recrafting this conversation about what is a tree, what does it do, and and also looking at this holistically. Right, a tree isn't a crop in timber, and a tree isn't part of an ecosystem, it's both. And I think hmm. a lot of times people based on wherever they come from on these different subjects, you know, politically and culturally, they tend to kind of cleave to one particular idea. And right. I really it's an either or situation, not yeah, that's it, a really good point. And so tree so to me what's I mean I'm I'm a plant person. I, I, I didn't get into this as someone as a lumber person and woodworker. Uh, I was excited about trees and then having a resource at the, at the time I discovered this, I was really excited about um, urban uh, agriculture and growing food in the city and uh, and foraging and wild food systems and all these related things. And to me, it's just like lumber is just one more component about getting a yield. And it's, it's also crazy that there's billions of dollars of potential lumber from urban trees is destroyed every year. So we have this vast resource of material, but it's kind of not a resource which I think we can get into more later about this, the system of today, because probably like I love talking about the next steps and I have some plans for that um, over the next couple of years of how to make that, that all a reality. But right now, I, you know, I get calls constantly like, do you want this tree? Do you want this log? And, and unfortunately the answer is uh, most of the time, no, because it's poorly formed it has metal in it. It's mm-hmm. hard to get out. It's only one log. And, you know, I can, you know, I get stuff from, more traditional forest products industry, it's a little self-loader shows up. I don't necessarily even have to be there. Then it's you know, five to 7,000 board feet of wood is lifted off a truck and it's ready to go. So, right. you, you know, so just as far as economy of scale and efficiency, so unless you have something that's a higher value log, it, it's hard to justify getting, uh, you know, yeah. one, one saw log and then dragging it out of a backyard. And I've, I've, I've wrangled, 
thousands of logs off of people's property. And, and, um, I, you know, I, we, we can get into to the nuts and bolts of that, but it, let's just say that, um, it was a, a, a $2,000, $200,000, uh, loss was my first iteration of, of, of doing all this. If I calculate uh, all my time energy, was I'm my sure. first kind of five year venture into urban, urban lumber. So, well, and I can tell you from, from my perspective, um, I'll, I'll, I will represent the commercial logging industry, the commercial lumber industry in this conversation. Um, the, I, I have been having very excited conversations with some of my colleagues about this kind of grassroots effort where I see the future of the lumber industry going is, is what you're talking about. And I get a lot of like raised eyebrows and a lot of like, well, it's never been done that way before. And it's like, well, yeah, it hasn't, but you can't, that, that's just an irrelevant statement. The biggest um, objection or the biggest thing that people will say to me at biggest con, they'll say is, well, yeah, but that, the grade of that stuff is just terrible. You know, you can only sell so many rustic pieces or feature walls. People will eventually want an FAS board. Um, and I think from at least from the, the what I've been seeing in people like you that I've been talking to is, yeah, there's no doubt that there's a lot of, you know, yard trees that you know, have a lot of crotch figure and crazy branching out in sections and bullets and bicycles grown into the trees and chains and horseshoes. all that type of stuff. Horseshoes. Yeah, absolutely. I a, yeah, I had a set of horseshoes once. But there's also a lot of good quality lumber. I mean, that's the other thing is, is, is there, there's this real popular thing around slabs and, and taking the whole tree, both live edges, you know, this whole through sawn slab and using it. But you can also rip that slab up into perfectly clear lumber. You can work around like, like woodworkers have been doing for millennia, you know, working around a lot of the stuff and getting that material out. And you can still get a fair amount of, of, we'll just say clear or, or, you know, a higher grade NHLA grade lumber out of that. The problem is, is the work that goes into that and the knowledge that goes into that, that I think has been lost at a lot of sawmills where we're used to, you know, it's wonderful when you've got that long straight bowl and the first branch is 15 feet off the ground. Ah, it's fantastic piece of cake you can throw that in there's no skill i'm not going to say that there's some skill to saw that into boards but there's a lot less skill to saw that log into boards it's more about yield than having to work around certain things and as that skill has been lost frankly sawmillers have gotten a little bit lazy um in dealing with this wonderful clear straight bowl that comes off as compared to this this yard tree and you put one side by side and you're like no i'm not going to deal with that it's 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 not worthwhile but the fact is there is still some really high quality lumber. Um, certainly there are trees, as you say, that it's just, it's, it's going to be a losing situation unless somebody is paying you to, you know, paying you well to come and wrangle that off, off the, uh, the yard and, and to saw it up and they're going to use it for something like that. It usually ends up being a losing scenario, which, um, yeah, how we can go from that being a losing scenario to a profitable scenario. I'm not sure that's a short game. I think that's a very long game, more than likely. I think so. Uh, yeah, man, that's uh, so many, so many things you covered there. So, <laughs> first off, I would say that the system of the future needs to be segregated from the system of today, and a lot of people want to tie an urban lumber system of today and and any wood that you got out of that system. What what I'm advocating for with planting and maintaining trees from the beginning of their life. I think that's a fool's errand and will not work. 
because they're totally different. <clears throat> so first off, we could grow high-grade, veneer-grade logs in any city, anywhere in the world where large-form trees grow, or even short. I mean, shoot, if you if you had a way to grow ornamental cherries and you could put a graft at eight feet uh-huh. and there was enough of it, I mean, you could grow clear uh, cherry species along for street trees, right? There's lots of creativity. So I definitely think in the future system that I'm envisioning, it's kind of a hybrid between plantation forestry, traditional forestry, and urban forestry. And that's the tricky nuance of knowing which parts of those systems to pull from mm-hmm. in a way that makes good sense. And, uh, but if we go back to the system of today, I, I would wholeheartedly agree that there are a lot of really nice saw logs. There's a lot, there's a lot of good material out there, and there's a lot of it that's worth getting. I think the, the tricky thing, um, one thing is, is that there just aren't good cultural practices so in a traditional forestry, you, 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 the way you make a face cut on a tree, the way you fall it, you have a logger's tape, you cut it into specific lengths, lengths that goes on a truck. That's all figured out. I, I should make a caveat that urban lumber potential is different based on the part of the country you're in and the kinds of trees that you have growing and the kinds of equipment that are available to you. And I do think on the East Coast, Specifically, there are probably more opportunities to move wood around in shorter lengths than there are out here. So a lot of my personal experience could be different than people in different locations. So it really depends on where you are and what resources are available to you. Sure. Yeah, but, I, think, I think that uh, goes to I think that applies across the entire lumber industry. You know, the, sure. the species and how they grow and the forest and the access and the tooling and all that is going to be completely different. I deal with sawmills out in your neck of the woods and up north of you and into Canada. It's a totally different ballgame than the guys I deal with in upstate New York. <laughs> completely sure. different it, business. Yeah. A lot of it a lot of it here is just because Doug for hemlock cedar are the dominant tree species and they're but they, they grow really tall mm-hmm. is that a self loader can bunk a twenty five foot log. So I know one guy that can do a 13-foot log. He has a half-size self-loader. There's a couple other people that have a few trucks around that can, that can move something. So it just gets really tricky if, you need, if you, there's only one person. That, whereas on the East Coast, I visited a, a Collins Company mill in Kane, Pennsylvania a few years ago, and they do cherry and oak and other hardwood species. And I... Per, personally mill a lot of dimensional hardwood lumber and their trucks were all set up to move eight foot logs. And I was like, Oh my God, like this is everything that I'm trying to do here across the country. It's, it's all here in Pennsylvania, (laughs) what I'd like to do in Oregon. But you know, I mean, it's a very expensive, uh, truck. So how many of those are are people going to buy if if there's not an incentive, uh, to, to get one or if it's not profitable. So that said, I mean, I think we could almost kind of walk through the process of how do you turn a log in your yard or from a from a municipality in, into lumber and, and boards, and that might be kind of a good storyline way to, to yeah, walk I through so. this. And these, all of these conversations are interesting because it's people learn in a linear fashion, 
mm-hmm. A, B, C, D. But it, this is really like a web of different things going on. So I was trying to figure out like what's the best way to untangle this crazy frenetic <laughs> conversation, this multi multi headed thing. Well, and I think I think a, a lot of the folks that are listening to this. I mean, certainly there's a lot of woodworkers listening, um, but there's also a lot mm-hmm. of Sawyers, um, and uh, I think all of us look at this idea of urban logging and what we relate to most is that tree in our yard. You know, I have a glorious sycamore in my backyard and I really don't ever want to see it go because of the amount of shade and it's just such a beautiful tree. But I also recognize um, my house was built in 66. That was a mature tree when the house was built because you could see how they um, they laid out the, the lots and they did it around that tree. And, and my neighbor next to me, was one of the first people to buy a house um, in 1966. She has since retired and moved away, but she told me they bought the house because of the fully grown sycamore in the back corner. So this sycamore has got to be, it's probably close to 80 years old. Um, And unfortunately, it's probably gonna have to come down sometime soon. Um, because it's going to come down on its own, and it's so big, depending on which way it falls, it's going to take out a house. Um, it, it does not matter. So we can all relate to that. We can all relate to the fact that we have a tree in our yard. So I think it's a really good place to start. Um, so I have I have a ginormous sycamore in my yard, and it's got to come down. What do I do with it to best maximize it? Okay, so... One thing, it's in the backyard, so yes. if you're going to have somebody mill that, if you can't get equipment back there or get the logs out or remove it with a crane, then a chainsaw mill would be a good candidate for something like that. You could also try and rip it into sections with a chainsaw with a larger bar, and you could get it out of quarters. Sycamore in particular, you probably know this, some of your listeners may or may not know, has great lace wood patterning on the quarter mm-hmm. saw. Yeah, quarter. Uh, face grain, so you, you can cut it into quarters. That's a lot more involved. You get less of the yield, but you can get r- really nice lumber. I would say on oak and sycamore logs that have sweep in them, it's hard to have grain running across consistently across the face of the board so you probably won't get complete quarter sawn figure across any of those boards if the log has sweep or, and I know that because I tried to do that <laughs> um, and so a lot of boards that the, the, the figure would or the pattern would go kind of in and out of the board and I've had the same thing with, with uh, white oak but so uh, you could buy a chainsaw and a chainsaw mill from like Grandberg you can get uh, custom-made bars up as big as as big as you want. You could cut it into slabs. You could cut it into some sections and then get some maybe like some round fence posts. Put mm-hmm. it on there. Have a small piece of equipment. You could roll those pieces out of the backyard. If you could get a big enough piece of equipment, you could pick it up and move it out of the backyard. Like I said, if uh, if it's crane removal then a lot of times they can pick stuff in lengths that are long enough. It does start to get tricky to have a lot of good boards if you're cutting everything into two-foot rounds. I personally buck my logs into eight-foot, six, ten-foot, six, twelve-foot, six lengths. I like to say that a good sawmill business 
starts with organization in the log deck. And a lot of people don't understand how important that is because if your logs are random lengths, then every other process all the way through making that into lumber, you have weird lengths. Uh-huh. So tallying lumber, my wood miser, for example, I have a LX450, it's all hydraulic. Those are set up where your side supports, where the log rolls onto the mill, are set up to mill a minimum of eight foot six lengths. I can mill shorter lengths, but I have additional dogs that the log turner doesn't work as well. So really like a minimum eight foot log is what is efficient for me to mill. Uh, well, there's a bunch of other kind of engineering things with the mill that goes on there. So with your tree, ideally you get minimum eight foot lengths uh-huh. and you're able to mill this into something and, and use it, right? Uh, and that's a that's a pretty simple uh, explanation, but a starting point. Well, and I think um, not to to just gloss over your point there about the random link thing. I think a lot of people aren't they don't quite understand that, and especially like the woodworker. You know, someone someone like myself who has a shop, and you know, and if I took that sycamore down, I would absolutely want to use it for my own projects. And we tend to think that way that it. it it doesn't really matter if you end up with a bunch of random links or whatever, but let's step back and look at this from the perspective of, I want to mill this into boards and I want to resell those boards. Random length can often be a bad word. Um, uh, for the average retailer, um, it can be very difficult to have a bunch of random sized boards. And what happens is those boards sell as random size boards. They sell one board here, one board there, one board there. The turn rate on that log is incredibly slow, which can be very difficult to manage as a business. Um, you sunk some money in, um, maybe you didn't pay anything for the log, but or maybe you did, I, probably not. Um, but you certainly sunk some time and materials into sawing this into boards. And if you have a, and if you have a whole bunch of random links and you can't sell that as a complete flitch, that log is going to hang around your retail, you know, uh, showroom for probably years until a thing is finally sold. You're not going to recoup any return on that for a long time. Well, that's, Shannon, that's exactly what I did. So I milled probably 12 to 1500 slabs. Uh-huh. I had a showroom at a, at a lumber yard for two years in Portland, Oregon, Sustainable Northwest Wood. Shout out to them. I still sell them lumber. Uh, great, great local business. Uh, and uh, I just slowly bled money because mm-hmm. I didn't buck logs to lengths. I, I cut everything into a slab. And sure, it was cool and beautiful. So I, I think one thing, it's really important to separate out here. Are we doing this? as a hobby, are you bringing something to someone like me to custom mill that wood for you? Or are we doing this as a, as um, a business? Are we doing this as, as a business? And, and, and that business could be uh, a friend of mine, Mark Duback, Windwood. He lives in Portland and he plays clarinet in the Oregon Symphony. And he does log raggling on the side. He has a truck, a trailer, a winch. He bring he has a chainsaw mill. He brings stuff to me to mill that I can that I can put on my wood miser because I can get more board footage and have more options about how we're going to mill things on smaller logs. So that's there's there's different iterations of that, right? So like I'm, okay. I'm trying to produce five five to ten thousand board feet of lumber every month that of hardwood 
conventional hardwood lumber. There's a lot of other people that are milling a lot of slabs. So I think it's really important for anybody out there that wants to do any of this is to think about like how much risk am I willing to take? How much money am I willing to spend? And uh, there's, you know, there's, it's it's if you're going to turn it into a business, there's there's a, a heck of a lot to know. And and again, the the first step is having logs that are saw logs. And when I started, I was just getting random lengths, and I thought, well, I'll leave it long because you never know what people want. And I would pick up whatever arborist called and said, hey, we've got this free stuff. And what I found is that I couldn't stack anything consistently because you have short boards and long boards, so you have a lot more end checking. So if your stacks are consistent and everything's eight foot, then I also can make modular units that are all the same size. Then I can put it on a truck and take it to a kiln, or I can make I up a kiln say, load if I have a kiln. Well, let's not even so, talk about loading the kiln with all those random links yeah. and random widths. Yeah, well, yeah. You, and you can, think you of can. A, think you of a game can. of Tetris, folks. The more unusually shaped those pieces are, the harder that Tetris is going to play. Um, and the more dead air you have in a kiln, the more problems you're going to have. Put it that way. Um, so I can. So basically. So right now, I haven't personally purchased a kiln yet because I, I felt like there's there's enough people around that will drive stuff for me, and there's a bigger industrial place that that I'm one of the few people will dry wood for. So I just had to charge a twenty five thousand board feet of material. They will work with me because they can lift everything off of a truck, and they can stack four units high, and they can roll put on a kiln cart and roll it in the kiln. If I if I brought them a bunch of weird slabs that's random lengths that are tricky and especially like a lot of people don't even have a bander like I band everything you, you know as so I have modular units and what that allows me to do is to to produce a good product without end checking on the board so if you think like every slab every board has twenty to fifty dollars worth of material you're going to cut off as a when you when a woodworker goes to use it and you're discounting that. That, that gets really expensive. So if yeah. it's like three or four boards, it's not a big deal. But if you're losing $50 to $100 in every unit and you have you produce 1,000 units, you do the math, that starts to add up. And then why, why are you putting all the effort into that? So, again, like I, I try to not have a big notch in the face of the butt log. I want to be able to trim the end of that then measure 8 foot 6, 10 foot 6, 12 foot 6 to my next uh, log on there and sometimes you'll trim out a defect and you know trimming logs is an art like anything else um, the other thing I, w I would mention is that so many people are focused on the trunk of the tree when the leaders and branches have a lot of good material in it so I try to get all of the wood that I can down to like a 12 inch uh, log so I got a, a walnut log recently from Salem it's about a, about 30 even 40 minutes south of my mill about an hour from Portland and they didn't have a tape measure. What was a 24-foot log? They cut it to two nines and one six-foot. So the six-foot log could have been an eight. So then that's weird. And then they took all the nice leaders that were 18 inches in diameter and they firewooded all of it. Oh, and I was wow. like, you guys just lost two to $500 wow. of merchantable timber and you threw it away. And I'm like, that's for me personally, that's the stuff that I'm really targeting. Yeah. So... I think a lot of people literally throw away a lot of the best stuff. Now, part of that's because everybody today is trying to cut slabs. Yeah. And so they're trying to get the, the big thing. Um, I, I, at some point we should probably 
talk about the slab market specifically because I, I I definitely have uh, strong opinions about that. See, my opinion really is positive. that it's that it's going away. So, do we have to talk about it? Because I feel like it's going to be gone in probably five years. Well, I don't I don't know. I think that there's going to be a market for slabs forever of certain species because a big, cool, beautiful slab is amazing and they're they look great. But let's think about it this way: if you're going to cut wood into slabs, you've essentially said. 99% of the table market and shelving market is gone. They're not, they're no longer your customer. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Well, a slab is the most expensive piece of wood. It's the most expensive per board foot. A slab is going to sell for a lot more probably than a board. So that's what people are seeing is they, they you know, like there's another uh, mill in Portland, Gobi Walnut, uh, good you know, friends of mine. They, mill huge walnut slabs there's berkshire products back east there's a few other places you know there's far west forest products in california so they're they're producing a lot of huge live edge pieces and i went on there and i'm like oh my god this is a thousand dollars per slab on this big log i can cut 10 to 15 slabs out of it all i have to do is it's going to take a day of labor i'm going to let it air dry for three years and then i'm going to sell it and the reality is out of most logs about 30% 30% of those slabs, if it's walnut or maple or a species that's desirable, will sell pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. But you're only going to sell one or two at a time. Right. And, and there then you're going to sit on the rest of it. <laughs> and then you're going to sit on the rest of it. And so when, when what people don't understand is if you look at the economics, if you put together a spreadsheet of all your costs, your time scale, and your turnover rate, Money today is worth more than money in the future. That is a that is a fundamental concept in all forestry. So whether that's lumber or that's growing trees. So that gets back to this bigger thing about why are trees growing on 50 to 80 year rotations, depending on where you are. It's because you put $10 or whatever into that tree 50 years ago. That money becomes very expensive while you're waiting for it to grow. Yeah. And in a shorter term thing, if you want to, you know, if they're doing whiskey or whatever, slabs are definitely fit into that same issue. So I also know that there's a lot of marketing that if you buy certain kilns, you can take a green slab, put it in the kiln and dry it. I had very, very poor experiences with that. I would not advise anybody to take a lot of different species of wood and put it into a kiln right away unless you want to trim several feet off the ends and scrap it because it's got excessive honeycombing and then uh, wait six, you know, wait four, four or five months. So that's air drying at a small scale, an inch per year, unless you're in a, a warm climate like uh, Texas, you know, my friends down there that harvest urban lumber or harvest lumber or at Helmwood, shout out to those guys. It's hot or my friends at Angel City in LA, um, it's too hot. So they have a problem where stuff dries out too quickly. But that said, for the most part, you need to air dry slabs for a minimum a year or two. I do an inch per year on slabs that I that I have. So if I cut a three inch thick piece of wood, you're gonna wait three years. The other thing is, is they tend to move or copper warp. So because it's wide, in order to get that flat, you're gonna take off a lot more material. So if you look at the end of it, you are charging more money, but you're waiting longer periods of time and your end user crowd is going to be a lot less. Now, there's less yeah. skill because you're putting a log 
on a mill or using a chainsaw mill and you're orienting it once and then you're making all of your cuts. So there are benefits. I think the more you scale, the more you realize why are bigger mills focusing on four quarter and five quarter lumber or, you know, with softwood lumber, uh, you know, framing lumber. Well, there's a reason you can turn it over more quickly and in larger volumes because the market's, the market is not, it, we're not going to cut everything into a slab at a small scale and have good success with that. Now, if you make value-added products, that's a way that you can take your own material, cut it into slabs, and then build furniture out of it. And a lot of people are doing that. But if you're specifically just trying to sell lumber like myself, like I, I don't, I cut, I don't edge certain species like walnut and elm. I'll leave a live edge on my one or two first cuts on a log, but I'm I'm essentially producing hardwood lumber. And I knew that that made sense the first time a furniture company came out. They had bought zero slabs for me over several years. I had a bunch, I had milled 10,000 board feet of dimensional walnut. I knew what I was doing. I did a great job. And they said, we'll take 4,000 board feet of that as soon as it's ready. Yeah. So even though I'm selling it for less money, I can turn that product over many, many more times. And instead of selling in one or 200 board foot increments at the most, uh, maybe sell four slabs as a, as a huge sale. I'm suddenly, I'm selling in 200, 500,000, 2,000 board foot uh, increments. Right. And that's the business model that frankly has existed for hundreds and hundreds of years. And you, you bring up this idea of creating value-added lumber, um, value-added product. Essentially, you're kind of doing that. I mean, if you look at it, the slab is is a unique product, but as you said already, it's just a through on board. Um, you know, you've left both live edges on. Now it, it it's got it's got its own issues when it comes to drying and all the other eccentricities that come with that big, wide board. You are and you and and many mills out there are sawing it into dimensional lumber. You know, six eight six eight or you know whatever whatever it is that frankly the market is dictating. And one of the um, kind of misconceptions I hear from a lot of people are like, oh, you know, the, the boards, they're just not as wide as they used to be. I don't know about that. I mean, certainly the, there are trees, certain species that are, that are not going to be as large as, as, you know, they were 100 years ago. But the market has pretty much said the six inch wide board is like the most desirable board. Certain species you may find like oak, you find a lot of times uh, 12 inches is good because it's used for a lot of stair risers. And that's where it comes in. There is a product in mind um, that is dictating the dimensional sizes. So as a sawmill, you're sawing into dimensional lumber. You're getting it closer to that end product, which means the, with more of that end product in mind, I can cater my log selection. I can cater the actual sawing of the log, not just to produce the maximum amount of board foot, but the maximum amount of board foot in that dimensional size. I can cater my kiln drying to that particular species, that particular length, that particular thickness, that particular width, that dimension, and cater all of that. I can do all of my logistics from banding it, like you said earlier, to the trucks that you're using, to how you're actually storing it in, in your inventory, near inventory sheds. All of that can be geared around that particular value-added product. And that is sustainable. Um, and that's why, that's pretty much how we see the lumber industry and speaking for my own company for almost 300 years, that's what we've been doing. You know, since before we were a country, this is what we've been doing. Um, and that's the reason it's sustainable is we, we've kind of found the use um, 
And we've tried to make that product for the end user, the woodworker, the furniture maker, the whatever it is, we've made that product as, as plug and play as possible to coin a 21st century term with an 18th century business, uh, <laughs> shoot first century business. Um, so everybody is producing a value added product. What I find interesting is the slab market. <laughs> I don't know. Is it a value added product? It's a through sawn cut. Now, if it's dried properly and, you know, done in like a vacuum kiln and dried so that you can prevent some of that warping and things like that, then yeah, there's some value added process. Well, vacuum kiln, just that. so you know, a vacuum kiln, whatever kiln you put it in is not going to prevent warping or checking. It's going to sure. do whatever. Agreed. It's so it's, it's, it, if it's kiln dried correctly and, and there's a lot of nuance and drying things. So we, we can, we can talk about that a little bit later or maybe I'll come back later. But my point, like, my I mean, point any, to any this is we could, yeah, yeah. You, you end up with a slab and you'd said it earlier. You know, say you have, you know, you've sawn up 300 slabs and you sell four of them. <laughs> it's like, woohoo, great. Um, the problem is we've left it large. We've left it into this slab and there's so many possibilities you can do with it. A lot of times the market well, doesn't also, want a lot of possibilities. They want, well, also I use in, it for this. Yeah. Keep in mind too, the other thing, when you're cutting something into a slab, you're really, you're getting a lot more material that might be a less desirable uh, grain orientation. Mm-hmm. So like the top two or three slabs on each side of the log are going to be flat soft. Yeah. So if you rip that down into a dimensional board, that's going to be less desirable, right? So there's a lot of things you're kind of limiting what that could be besides a slab because now it's a slab. Also, you put all the time into it. So the, the last purge I did of material, I, I, there's, a, there's an amazing wood shop in Portland that people – uh, live in the Pacific Northwest. They're called Creative Woodworking Northwest. It's a multi-million dollar shop. They have planar sanders from Italy that you can surface up to 50 inch wide slabs that have helical planar heads and sanding belts on the same machine. Uh, they have all kinds of amazing stuff. So I've surfaced a lot of stuff there. They were generous enough to let me take over the parking lot a couple of years ago and I had a big sale and I purged like what was $100,000 worth of retail slabs and i think i sold everything for fifteen thousand dollars and i was grateful I, I sold everything at under three dollars a board foot and then at that point i'm like man i could have just sawn dimensional red oak lumber on an lt15 instead of yeah. buying a giant lucas slabbing mill without any other ability to cut anything else so um and again like slabs there's a market for it i, I don't want to discourage people from sure. not doing that but there's but always going to be a I, place I, there's a place in the market for it. And I think that's where the boutique sawmill can make their place. Um, this is what I talked about uh, in a, a recent episode of the show where I talked about, um, so you want to start a lumber business. You got to understand yeah. who your target demographic is. <clears throat> and if you enjoy creating slabs and you enjoy, you know, the, the customers who come to you and the things they make from it, <clears throat> let that be your place. Where I think the slab market has gone off the rails recently is there are companies like the one that I work for. You know, we don't personally, but the companies like us that have, have started into this slab market. It's like, no, guys, stay in your lane um, because we, we don't need the, to flood the market with a bunch of slabs when the size of that overall market is quite small. 
you know, we talk about all day long. I talk to woodworkers and local woodworking guilds and I say, you know, I'm sorry, guys, you are a tiny, tiny portion of the market. And most woodworkers recognize that. And you recognize that, you know, these businesses, they're, they're making their, their living on the companies coming and buying 4,000 board feet, like you said earlier. And the guy that comes in and buys sure. three and four boards, we're always grateful, but, you know, you, you, can't, you, you can't sustain a business on three or four boards. The slab market no. is an even smaller subset than that. It's a niche within a niche within a niche. <clears throat> so the people that produce those slabs, let them, let them do that. And the rest of us continue on and focus on the, on the other aspects. I, of the I would just really advise people to really look at the economics of that and like, just know that it might be five years from log to selling all of the wood from one, that one log cut all of the slabs. Yeah. And you're going to have a lot of material handling issues with something bigger and, and more difficult. And, uh, there material are degradation more, too. Again, Five years of a slab sitting. I mean, you can take care of it, but you have to also be prepared and have the facilities. You know, you can't just leave it out in the yard um, for five years. No, it's fine. So once you kiln dry anything, and I would pretty strongly discourage most people, anybody from selling air dried only lumber for a variety of reasons, people can do whatever they want. But I, I think that's a fool's errand if you're charging people money to not kiln dry your material. Uh, or at least do a bug a bug kill at the end so that yeah. you don't have bugs pouring out of things. But that said, um, it's it's just a, it's a it's a tough market. You sell in small quantities, and you can leave it air drying outside in a lot of climates, and it's fine. But the minute uh, you you want to have weight on it, and you want to cover the top with plywood or something so you don't have sun damage, but the minute that you do kiln side kiln dry something. It needs to a minimum be in a building or a warehouse or somewhere that's undercover. So you right. can't leave that out. And if you have 50 of those things, that's a lot of material that you, that, that does that's take a big up building. space, let alone 100 or 500 slabs. And then, okay, you've got some in the back that you need to get to, and you've got to move how many units of that. And it's not easy to, to move because there's there are weird shapes and sizes and um, if people do want to cut slabs, I would say eight foot to twelve foot lengths. You could do specialty sixteen to twenty foot logs for like huge tables, and do thirty six to forty eight inch wide is a good formula. You could do uh, twenty twenty to twenty four inch wide smaller logs, and then you could save those as sequence book match sets, and that is a pretty good formula. And you could do ten quarter to twelve quarter thicknesses, so. I, I do want to cover that quickly. If that's that's, I think, a good formula. Anything else starts getting tricky and hard to move. And I would say, like, look at the five top five species that you see in your area where people are actually moving that material. And I also don't think things necessarily filled with defects. Most woodworkers don't want that. And I know there's an epoxy market, and people are excited about using things with excessive character. I have found that something that was a weird shape or had a lot of defects in it, I sold it for under $3 a board foot. Agreed. Pretty yeah. much all of it. So that, it, That's it, an it even just, smaller it, it niche, I think. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, and obviously, that's just a, I think that's an important part of this conversation because people are constantly reaching out to me or I've seen new people starting new businesses. I also want to mention a really great book. If there's any one business book you're going to read, it's called The E-Myth, The Entrepreneur Myth. 
Uh, I've leased space from an industrial plant nursery called Little Prince, Oregon. About five years ago, I asked the owner of that business, why do you have 20 or 30 employees? I have small businesses. I can't scale. I can't grow. I'm having trouble being systematic. And he said, hey, I read this book, and that really helped me think about having systems and processes in my business. So if we're going from you and your buddies get a couple of beers and someone has a chainsaw and somebody else, you, you spend 500 bucks on a slabbing mill setup or whatever. If you are trying to do any of this as a business, the E-Myth is a great little book to read. It's a little schmaltzy in some parts. Not everything's realistic, but one of the fundamental, a couple fundamental keys in there. One is, is what does the customer want? So make your product for your customer. Don't make it for you. And a lot of people that I think are, you know, for example, milling everything into slabs or, or however they're doing it, or if your mill site is messy or hard to get at, that's because you're doing what works for you, not yeah. what works for your customer. So if you're a woodworker, what do you want? You want to be able to come get what you need. You want to get it easily. You want to put it into your vehicle or have it delivered and get to work. And as a contractor, any kind of a, a builder, maker, contractor, you have an eight, eight to nine hour workday, uh, probably more if you work for yourself, but you're going to have six hours of productivity. So if you have this great urban lumber or you're a, a, a sawmill, maybe in a semi-rural or more rural environment, people drive out to see you, if they can't get what they want, they're not going to come back. Right. Because yeah. it, it it's it's just they're not going to be able to take the afford to take the extra time. Now, some people can't. So. But I'm talking about 80, 90 percent of the market. So the E-Myth does a great job of explaining, like, build your systems and processes with your customer in mind. And the other great thing that it talks about is to work on your business, not in your business. And that was a big one for me. So like me talking to you uh, yesterday, I had a meeting with another another uh, mill owner about sharing some resources. And instead of me just grading and sorting a bunch of lumber that I need to do all day, I, I took some time and had a business meeting and created some written documents. I'm putting stuff in some spreadsheets this week. So I try to take a little bit of time or to do some maintenance on equipment, but working on your business, having systems and processes will help you actually have success so that the end product, whatever it is that you're making, there's a customer that says, that's exactly what I wanted. You have it and I'll buy it. Right. And, and you know, those, those aspects of it's more than just having what they want it's making it easy for them to get it um yeah you know i mean <laughs> people can vilify amazon all they want but they have made it super easy to get anything you possibly want oh in next day um and that's probably one of the major reasons they're successful so well, the same as mcdonald's right you can put yeah. anybody back in the, back in there and ha a hamburger or cheeseburger or I, i'm not necessarily a fan of mcdonald's but i mean you look at I mean, even if you look at like we have a great local chain called Burgerville and they, they source local ingredients and definitely you're going to pay more for a hamburger or whatever there, but it's fast food. But they have a similar model. You can pull up. They have things. There's people that can efficiently make that. And so for me, uh, and I guess this would be more of a, of a business related system, like I'm trimming all my logs to the same length. I put them in a log deck when I have enough logs that I can make at least a minimum of the unit. I'll do a run of Oregon white oak or black walnut or uh, elm or maple or whatever it is that I'm doing. You know, I also do uh, on occasion mill uh, vertical grain fir. So I, I get the material 
I trim it to the right lengths. I mill all that. I stack it, sticker it. It's in a unit. I, I band it. Then I put a, a landscape tag on it. That's the metal tag. So I remember the date, the location, all the pertinent information about what that material is, where it needs to go. And then I can efficiently, I can take it to a kiln or I can load a kiln on site easily. Then I'm able to take the bands off of it. I put it on roller. I have a, a roller table system set up so I can roll out all my boards. I can grade a couple hundred board feet to 300 board feet at a time. And then I can sort it and stack it into units. And then I can put a, a label on that. And then I can say, I have 350 board feet of this material at this grade. Yeah. And it's a lot more work. I also uh, have a home for sawdust. I have a blower that I, I hooked up to the my wood miser, just like a shop blower that I just plug into a regular outlet. So eight, 70% of my sawdust blows into there. I have dump hoppers, dump all of my scraps into that goes to a burn pile or I can take it to a landscape debris place. So it's really important to have a clean, organized place with a repeatable set of processes. Obviously like my, a lot of my book goes kind of into putting these systems together. Um, and that's the thing where a lot of people want to skip those steps. Oh, I also, on my, my boards push off my mill with a drag back and then they go onto roller tables. I have marks on all of them. So if I want to oh. trim up some short pieces for firewood, if I have a board that's eight feet, but half of it's junk, I can cut it into a four foot section. So I can value, I can still keep all of that shorter material and sort for that, but I'm not going to put it in into a stack with eight foot boards. So I'm pre-grading all of my stacks. Right. Um, as I make them up. So these are all the things that I, that a lot of people on the outside, they're just excited. You see a log, it's got some beautiful material in it, but uh, there's a whole bunch of things to know about how to get the best value out of, out of each log. And again, I'm, I'm happy to well, come back and talk you can about imagine. specific steps. So, you know, this is, these are a lot, a lot of complicated things that are hours of conversation. In, in <laughs> sure. And but, but I think it's important. I think it's important for people to kind of see uh, behind the curtain not only from the perspective of somebody that may be interested in doing this as a business, but moreover, what is that price, that board foot price that you're seeing? There's a reason behind that. There's a massive amount of labor involved in all this. And it's not even just labor, but systems and processes. If let's go back through your example, if you hadn't um, cut all of your logs to standardized dimensions and they were all random, uh, random length, there's going to be a substantial addition uh, additional amount of time sorting your log deck and let's, <laughs> let's just not gloss over the fact that sorting the log deck is not like oh let's just pick through these boards no those are cranes and heavy loaders and things like that moving things around and frankly a very dangerous environment you know if one of those elements yeah. shifts it kills somebody so sorting the log deck is a massively hazardous thing to do so by starting right at the beginning of your of, of your input into your manufacturing process by standardizing that it's going to significantly reduce the amount of time and danger that goes into sorting through that log deck then as you move you know downstream from there into the mill the uh, uh proper management of the waste of the sawdust if you you know you go uh, you pull together your fur logs for the day and you're cutting vg fur and you cut enough to make that unit and you're not efficiently getting rid of those offcuts because as, as anybody who's sawn a log knows, there's a lot of waste that comes out of a log, not just dust, yes, but you know, that first couple of cuts, all that, those 
hunks of things, you've got to find a way to effectively do that. If you don't, you're going to spend an entire day, the next day, shoveling it up and breaking it up and moving it into a dumpster and having lifts and things moving it around. And, and you basically lose production as you're trying so to imagine clean it doing that, that. Right. And imagine doing that if you're doing it every day. So I, yeah. I, you can't I, actually, unless you have multiple I have sawmills. A steak rack. I have a steak rack. So my, all my scrap cuts, that's the cut for your first cut on any face of the log that has bark on one side and splat on the other. That's firewood. That rolls down my roller tables, and then it kicks sideways onto some other roller tables, and then I have a stake rack that's six feet. And then, and again, because I'm cutting everything in the same lengths, I can put one after another of those offcuts into a stake rack, and then I can band it, and then I have about a half to three-quarters of a cord per band, and then I have someone that takes away the firewood. Um, and so instead of having 20 or 30 cords of crap that's, been thrown off the side of the mill. Uh, I have that. I also um, milled six inch thick fur beams for my floor because I didn't have at the time I started didn't have the money to pour a concrete floor. And so I have I saw at the end of the day, I, I, I keep that swept and clean. So at the end of every day, it looks like we just put the mill in the building. Nice. I mean, once in a while, I'll cheat and I'll, I'll leave. But it's there's no bark. There's no there's no junk underneath the mill. There's no scraps. Everything is cleaned off. I blow off the mill. I sweep the floor, and I have a dump hopper on each side of, of the mill. One of them is for sawdust only, and then the other one is for all the bark scraps. The bark scraps go to a burn pile on the property. All the sawdust is segregated. Sometimes I have mushroom growers will take it, or horse stables, black walnut will kill horses. So right. um, if that gets commingled, you know, one of my things is to eventually be able to have like be able to have a blower system where I can blow different kinds of uh, sawdust into different bins and then I can sort that and then I can start to find a better home for it. But, um, you know, cool. I think I have like 20 or 30 yards of sawdust right now that I need to get rid of. Right. Uh, so, yeah, so it's called, it's called, so yeah, so it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of waste, right? There, it, any manufacturing process, there's inputs and outputs. Your input in this situation is a log. Like you said, oh, and you know, I, I should mention really quickly, this whole thing, safety is really, really important. And a lot of people tend to be casual about that. I was a flight attendant for United for eight years. Safety is drilled into you. And obviously, you don't hear about that on a plane, but every flight you do safety checks and you're like, if I get it, this thing crashes and it's on fire, how do I get out of this plane? And how do I get people out of this plane? Yeah. If someone has, there's a medical emergency, how do I get a defibrillator? How do I uh, provide CPR? So I do constant uh, safety conversations. I'm not 100% on everything, and nobody is when you're small, but I, I, I have a sign when people, where people park. I, people have to park in a certain spot, and it says enter at your own risk. Uh, I'm very careful about everything that I'm doing, and if you're if you're not careful, a log's going to roll over on you. It's going to break your leg. Uh, you can smash your fingers. Uh, chainsaws are super dangerous. Like I'm, I'm really lucky. My former one of my former business partners was a wildland firefighter and a hot shot for four years and a class B faller. So I'm very careful about using the chain break, wearing chaps, not looking down the bar while I'm cutting, keeping my thumb around the wrap. There's a bunch of fundamental things, and and a lot of people are pretty cavalier about stuff, and you can get away with it a lot, but if, if you make a mistake, uh, consequences can be 
can be severe, yeah. and that does happen to people. Statistically, so reason, catches number one, up with you. Yeah. yeah. So, so you know, let's... if you don't know how to do something, watch some safety videos. Uh, just yeah, the, just the safer you can be, the better. And I, I don't, sure. I feel like some people are rebellious about that. I don't. That's dumb. I just don't. I, I fundamentally just think being safe and responsible is is a good thing, and that means. Also, like if you're on the road with logs and equipment and you're overloading stuff and you fly off the road and you kill somebody or hurt somebody else that's not even involved in your harebrained idea, I mean, that's that's not cool. No. So, you know, it's, it's an – anyway. Sure. That's a little bit of a safety rant there. <laughs> so let's you, – you brought up the flight attendant. So let's land this plane. We're, we're about an hour right now. Yeah. Let's switch to the other side of this coin, to the consumer sure. side of things. And let's look at it um, again from two different perspectives. We've got um, the average woodworker or maybe average homeowner. And then we have like the commercial user, the furniture maker, the manufacturer, the architect. What is, let's start with the, like the individual. What do you think is the best way for that person to tap into this urban lumber market? And I'm not talking about, you know, I, I'm, I'm one of these people that I think it would be kind of fun have my own sawmill, I don't have the space for it. I don't have the zoning. I don't have the land for it, but I would love to buy urban lumber. I don't want to fell my tree. I don't want to saw it into boards, but I want to buy it from someone who has. What's the best way for someone like that, the average person, to, to tap into the, the urban lumber economy? That is a gr- that's a great way to put it. I, as a caveat, if you decide you do want to do this for a living, right. uh, you're going to spend... <laughs> A lot of money. It's uh, it's a great, uh, you know, any sawmill business is a great way to take a large fortune and turn it into a smaller fortune. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, yeah, I, I probably have spent four or five hundred thousand dollars now, and I'm on a shoestring budget. I would say you're going to spend at least ten to twenty thousand dollars, and then if that's sure. if you already have a truck and some tools. So, it's it's expensive. Even if you buy a five thousand dollar, ten thousand dollar mill or something like that, you need a lot of other things beyond that. So, but for the consumer. Uh, a great place, two great ways to find people, or three, let's say. Craigslist is one, mm-hmm. Facebook Marketplace. You can also uh, just Google urban lumber and uh, small sawmill and just Google what shows up in your area. Um, you can also check on Instagram. I think it's been a really great resource for me. I feel like most people post something on there and you can find folks all over the world that are doing this so those are some great uh avenues and then just call people up and ask what do you sell and you can also ask for what say this is what i need you'll with smaller businesses they're not going to produce everything so it's not like going to a giant lumber yard or home depot so you want to find out what they have and if they don't have it you can ask like hey do you have a friend or somebody else that saws what i need and i think also even if this is more of an abstract thing, but if you call and say, you don't have it, will you produce that? Could you produce it? I like to buy X amount of this material on a regular basis. And the answer might be might be no, but uh, if they start hearing from a lot of people like, hey, I really wish yes. you had yes. uh, dimensional walnut. I really, no, actually, I want to make uh, 20 slab tables a year. Like, well, I'm not doing that, but if I can work something out with you. So I think like, in the long in the long run, just being able to make calls and, and check in with people and ask what they have, or just take a look at their website and see what they're what they're offering. So, and I think that's really a great place that a lot of people 
can buy something locally. And I think on the flip side of that, we discussed before, Sawyers need to know what, what people in the marketplace want right. and really target that so that when that customer calls, you're like, yep, I have that, or I have something similar to it, right? That it's not totally divergent from that. Well, so and I think a just key doing point, some research online, well, you'll find that. You can find people. One of the things that, that, that excites me about this, this idea of urban forestry is, is the local, hyper-local nature of it. You know, we, we remove some of the supply chain aspect because we're buying boards that used to be a tree that was on the corner, you know, stuff like that. So the more that as, as a user or someone who, who also is excited by this, someone who wants to tap into more unusual, non-commercially available species, wants to tap into building a piece of furniture from a tree that they could point to where it used to stand, that story that comes from that, you need to, to call around to these mills and say, look, do you, do you inventory, do you stock any locally sourced material? And yeah. if they don't, the, again, the more people that say, hey, I'm looking for something that, that's local. I want to buy a species that grows around here, that, was, that, w- that grew around here. The more these lumber yards hear this, the more they're going to recognize this is, this is a movement. Folks, this is something that the market is demanding, and we need to look into how we can get it into a part of this. Look, we, we talked a lot yeah. about slabs. That's how slabs started. You know, that was something yeah. that just wasn't done 10 years ago. Nobody did it because it was inefficient. Sure. And then, you know, whether, whether, what came first, the slab or the epoxy? I don't know. Um, but well, you know, I think, I think just the sawmills, there's been so much talk, technology upgrades in small scale sawmills that you can yes. buy. So I think it's yeah, kind of a point. convergence of a bunch of, a bunch of, things you've got the ability to do this where i got excited about this in 2007 and if you were milling slabs it was a super off the wall really cool unusual thing and so i was like i'm going to do that and then i was like well i missed that the boat has sailed on that a little bit and i also just it wasn't doing a good job i wasn't getting the right kinds of logs at the right sizes and milling them correctly so but that said uh i think that they're if pe- people out there and you just got to be patient and try and work with people and w- w- all of us in this, in this kind of niche industry need to be doing a good, a good consistent job so that customers are not disappointed. And there's a lot of sloppiness, I think just because it's hard work to get to, to cur- produce a, a surfaced kiln dried board or slab is a, is a heck of a lot of work to get to that point. And so I think a lot of people are like, well, I'll just do part of it and then I'll just, people can do the rest of it. And so that's where I think is a chicken and egg. If there's better quality products and everybody's doing a good job, a rising tide raises all ships. So, yeah. but I think people just need to be patient and then maybe you tried something that didn't work, call somebody back a couple of years later. They probably learned they're probably better at something or there might be another business that started up that might have what you need. So, and, and I, and that's really, to me, like, I'm so grateful for the customers that I have because they come in and they, they buy things. And then also <laughs> what you've talked a lot about specifying, specifying things that, so I have a, I have a whole, I have thousands of board feet of amazing eight quarter American Elm right now that looks almost like teak. It's amazing wood. It's beautiful. It's dense. It's nice. But I, a lot of people are like, no, I want walnut or I want uh, white oak. Um, now, Oregon white oak is considered a trash tree in industrial forestry in Oregon. So that's a, a whole other interesting story for another time. But I have, you know, so it's hard. I, I have I struggle to get people to specify 
different species because people are stuck on these specific things. And I think that would bleed into what you asked about, like ar- right. architects. Perfect. Perfect. Um, you know, and people that, you know, look at that. I did it. I, I usually don't, but I, <laughs> well, let, let me, let me preface this or let me, let me complicate this by saying okay. now, as we shift towards the architect, toward the contractor, toward the builder, we, we, we steep ourselves in tradition and the way things have been done. <clears throat> the construction trade is an incredibly stubborn market. Um, they, they have gotten used to using certain species, using certain cuts. They've come to expect a certain grade from that particular species or, 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 or even that particular sawmill. And that's what they're specifying. You know, the other thing is, is 100% clear seems to be an afterthought. Um, there's so many users that have come to think of lumber like plastic, um, and they forget that it's an organic material and that what they're calling a defect is just, it's just wood, you know, it's not going to be 100% uniform from one end to the other. Now, fortunately or unfortunately, there are some species and some mills who are able to produce incredibly clear, perfect examples of a particular species. And maybe they do it one or two times to the point where that architect now, he starts on another project and he's thinking, okay, well, last time I used, you know, vertical grain teak and it was all perfectly clear. Well, now you can't get that anymore. Um, And people don't quite understand that. I think the difference as we look at this urban market, and like I said at the beginning of our call, there's this perception that the grade is going to be lower, that there's going to be a lot of defects. There's going to be a lot of, quote, character grade lumber that comes from urban log trees. And that I may want that as an architect for maybe the feature wall in the lobby of this office building, but I'm going to need clear stuff for all of the baseboard molding, all the crown molding, all of the paneling in the rest of the building. So I can't, I can't use urban lumber for that. So all of those complications come into to bear. How do we think we can get the commercial sector hooked on the idea of urban lumber, but also recognizing that it's that is a uh, a perfectly viable resource um, as compared to the quote traditional uh, dimensional lumber and things like that. So from the sawmill side of things, or the forestry side, or arborist, or everybody, you know that efficiency, having a consistent product that's an industry standard product is really important. Grading is where a lot of people, I, and I don't grade the national hardwood standards, so the NHLA standards, but I, I have a, basically a grading. So like I have an FAS and a number one and a number two, right? So, mm-hmm. and then I have wow boards or I have things that are specialty boards. So that could be like for uh, a, you know, a guitar maker, or like really high end furniture, if you have something highly figured. So sorting, sorting and grading stuff is really important so that if someone says, hey, I, I do want something nicer. So right now I have probably 500 to 700 board feet out of four to 7,000 board feet of elm that's all FAS grade. So definitely if somebody wanted that, I'm like, yes, I have it. It's a little bit more, but it's amazing. And then for a lot of applications, having a few knots here and there are fine as long as it's sound. Now, there are certain defects that are more time consuming. And I think from a sawmill side of things, you need to understand that, that if you have stuff with checking or splits and those kinds of defects, it is going to just make it unprofitable for a woodworker that's trying to do something efficient. So 
Right. Uh, some woodworkers, like they're going to put bow ties in there and do all the fancy, cool one-off stuff. And, and for them, it's a different set of parameters. But yeah. for the majority of the market, they're like, hey, I need to make X amount of these this month. So I need nice quality boards. So I'm constantly trying to sort the, out those defects, saw logs with certain certain orientations like uh, to do that so that they have good quality material. But if so, an example, I recently custom milled some ponderosa pine logs for a lodge in central Oregon, a totally different kind of forest ecosystem where it was high desert. And in the conversation with one of the architects, I mentioned that I mill a lot of Oregon white oak and I have about 70 or 80,000 board feet on and back stock on sticks. Like some of it gets turned on the floor and she said, Oh, we could do wide plank flooring. That would be amazing. And I think that's a classic story where I'm like, uh, no, a lot of the, I don't have to, in order to make wide, clear, high, or even, you know, just, just to make that product, there's a, there's less of that material out there Yeah, because I'm small. And my friend at Xena Forest Products, Ben in, in Salem, who's probably the like king of Oregon White Oak and is doing a lot of great things around forestry and that 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 stuff in the state. There's just not an, a volume that we can produce where you can make that product. So that's where they're thinking like, oh, this is unique because you're small and specialty. So you'll have a higher, clearer grade. And it's kind of the opposite and right. a lot of times. Like I have some of it, but I'm not going to have the volumes that you're looking for at a price point that your customer may want. So being more flexible about having some knots in the wood. I mean, I'm talking about sound knots. I'm not talking about like sure, huge sure. voids where you have to pour a lot of epoxy in there or do those sorts of things. So, Well, I think this is an I instance think, where like the folks, because I know, I know you've met them and I've had them on the show, but the folks at Cambium Carbon and their trace mm-hmm. software could really lend a hand here because now you're collaborating you know you have 700 feet of maybe stuff that could classify as wide and then somebody down the road may have 300 feet of something classified as wide and the architect working through an entity like cambium carbon or at least the various sawmill customers of cambium carbon using their software could could actually put together uh, an order that would fill that because that's what happens in my business now. Um, if I have a customer that comes to me and they say, I need, you know, 15,000 board feet of this particular species and here's the application, you know, and that specification, you know, I, I look at it and, and, and say, okay, yeah, it's white oak. Sure. I've got 15,000 board feet of white oak. Oh, but the spec is 10 and wider, uh, 12 and longer <clears throat> quarter sawn. Okay, well, now I sort through my own stock and I've only got 5,000 feet of that. So what happens is is then we call around to several other mills. We call our suppliers and we say, how long will it take you to develop another 10,000 board feet of this particular spec? And one mill says, well, I can develop 1,000 board feet. This mill says I developed 4,000 board feet. And eventually we pull it all together. We go to the customer and say, okay, we can get you 15,000 board feet. Lead time on that is going to be, you know, one month two months, whatever, um, we can have it delivered, all this stuff, and that's how you come up with the eventual price. That's how it's done now. Um, so yeah. I think where where the breakdown is happening with these kind of more boutique mills, or shall we say, not even boutique mills, even mainstream mills, but boutique products like, mm-hmm. you know, Oregon White Oak or Sassafras mm-hmm. or Catalpa, pick, pick an unusual species. Yeah. You know, you, you coffee tree, yeah, yeah like perfect coffee tree, or like, uh, what's it? Yeah, there's lots, like, yeah, there's a ton of them. There's like, uh, 
uh, Fruitwoods, you were talking about that the other day. I love oh, yeah. plum. You can't get it in big lengths. I've got a thousand board feet of small stuff. I'm going to turn the cutting boards. We can I, get I, can't can't yeah. We can get these commercial markets into these more unusual species within reason. Certainly, you're not going to mm-hmm. you know panel an entire corporate office complex in Apple. Sorry, it's just not going to happen. No. <laughs> um, but <laughs> but you, you could have like the 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 tables in the campus cafeteria. You know, maybe sure. one or two of them made out of apple. And again, the story that sourced from these apple trees, that stuff could be done. And that's the stuff that in my experience in dealing with architects directly, that's the stuff they get really excited about. Um, because here is the unique thing, because really all architects want to do is make their, you know, they want that building that says I built it, you know, the, the, their space in the skyline or yeah. their space on the countryside or whatever. That, that unique think- factor is such a huge deal. One thing I, I would mention that I think gets tricky about urban lumber with bigger architectural buildings is that they're not going to order all just eight quarter lumber, right? right. That they're going to need uh, veneer. So, for example, Oregon white oak. Uh, I've had some logs sliced into veneer that I did with sustainable plus wood. Uh, we shipped them to Indiana because mm-hmm. Indiana veneers. There's that. There's Friesens. There's other places in the Midwest, that's the place to send it. And they did a fantastic job. And I think we, out of seven logs, we netted like 80 or 90,000 square feet of veneer. But there's no veneer slicer around here uh-huh. that does that. So when someone goes, to, we're like, hey, we've got, we need to uh, lay up some panels. We want this grain orientation. Then all of the drawers in the kitchen, we need veneer for that. Uh, we want a little bit of eight quarter for this. Then all the trim is gonna be four quarter. So that's where it gets tricky at a smaller scale, uh, where you can't just say we have a suite of products and we have everything you want. And I think that that is an impediment because it's like, you know, if you're going to slice veneer logs, you need high quality material. And that's a whole other can of worms conversation for, for, for another day. But I think that's um, the place well, where the architecture millwork house has its spot in the market. Um, the architecture yeah. millwork house is going to be sourcing material. Um, and they're going to have yeah. to source it from multiple locations. So I think what ideally the, the win in this would just be to get the conversation going about these yeah. other types of species. I think that's a, a really key thing. Um, you know, you, you mentioned wide plank flooring before, and I often laugh because the flooring industry, um, it's swatches, it's color swatches. It, it, there's go to any flooring website and it's mostly like proprietary color stain names. Very rarely yeah, do you actually see the wood species. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you'll look through pages and pages of different types of, of flooring, and nowhere does it say maple or oak or anything. It's, you know, Sierra mist in a cloud bank. You know, that's what they call it. Um, and you have to really <laughs> dig deep before you find out what the actual material is. Now, when they do mention what the material is, it's usually in some sort of reclaimed, unique mushroom wood type thing um you know and and you know this is reclaimed barn wood white oak or something that's the only time they really mention the wood my point being that all of these um specifiers are going for a look for a particular type of look and the more we can start them start um getting them to recognize that there is a a panoply of woods out there that can tell a story of locally sourced um greenwash it however you want um but it can create a a unique thing that's in the same look i had a customer that came to me now this is a 
literally a world away because we're talking exotics, but they wanted specifically wire plank teak flooring. And the spec that they had could have been doable, but the lead time on it would have been like four years because to develop that amount they were looking for with that kind of VG wide plank teak, perfectly clear, it could be done, but it would take a very long time. We got them into Iroko. We flipped the script and told them to Iroko because ultimately it wasn't teak they wanted. They wanted a honey brown Mm -hmm. color. And sure. okay, that's what's important to you. And I talk about this all the time. If you if you want to buy material, what's most important to your particular project? Focus on that and things become a lot easier because if, if it's clear um, and all you care about is that there are no knots, but you don't really care if it's kind of a light brown or a dark brown or even a, you know, a white wood, you just want it to be perfectly clear, that makes the, the decision a lot easier. And we can start getting people talking about different species which I think will get it, get them to start recognizing that not all boards come from a forest. Um, and I think that's our yeah. big win. And that's our, our, our takeaway from this conversation. More importantly, the takeaway I'm having from this conversation is not all boards from the urban, I'm using air quotes, from the urban logging are filled with defects or are character boards. Many of those boards you wouldn't be able to tell the difference from, you know, a traditional forestry dimensional board. There's a lot of dimensional oh, lumber. 100. percent um, correct. And by the way, bigger sawmills too. Like, they, they, how does a sawmill work? You take a log, you cut it up into a bunch of things, then you sort it and you grade it. So right. there's lots of low grade material coming out of a giant hardwood oh, yeah. mill or softwood mill. And so it's not that. I mean, they're milling logs with sweep defects, all kinds of weird things going on. But what you see as an end consumer, you know, this is where we get back to specification, is that you're just seeing the cream of that crop, right? An yeah. FAS board, a clear, a clear board. But there's all this other stuff that's turning the pallet stock or, uh, I don't know, they're value adding it as flooring, right? A flooring manufacturer buys a lower grade of something and chop out all the defects. Like I sell oh, yeah. my low grade Oregon white oak. I sell that to my friend Ben at Zena. So like he's providing a bunch of flooring for a new wing at the airports, like 90,000 square feet and a bunch of my wood will go to him. And, uh, I'm selling that just, I mean, I'm, yeah, it's, I mean, the flooring industry, that, but it's great. You know, it's like, yeah. Flooring industry so, thrives on number two common, number three common, because yeah. that's what they need. That's, yeah. and, and that's a perfect example of wood not going to waste, but the average consumer, like you say, they're seeing the FAS stuff because that's what the market, the market has been demanding. Now I'm hopeful that that is starting to shift a little bit. And as defects, I, I hate using that word because I hope no one, anyone listening to this recognizes that I don't use the word defect in a bad way. That's just, that's NHLA training talking right now. Um, these well, defects, this character, on, you know, rustic yeah, grade, it's all more acceptable. Well, I don't now. even know if it's rustic. I mean, it can just be beautiful, just has not. But I think that's the unfortunate thing is, is that we, yeah, I think that's a, a, a very good nuanced comment you made that we're using negative language to talk about what a tree actually does, right? It's like yeah. we almost want to hide, like, well, how does a tree function? How does it create sugar, which is its food, right? It's like, well, it's using branches with leaves and those are attaching to the trunk. And we're essentially wanting to pretend that that doesn't exist. We want only heartwood dead, the, 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 the wood that's not even alive anymore. Right that has that color with extractives in it. And we're, we're kind of skipping all of the things that made the tree a tree. And of course there's reasons for that. Like certain things, defects can be, uh, they're problematic to build with. So there's, there's a reason, there's a reason for that, but there's a lot of defects that are fine. 
And uh, I think people just need to, you know, I think a lot of architects just don't get a lot of classes about materials. And I think Agreed. that's a big problem. Agreed. Um, they, and they're not built, you're not building. There's a, there's a program called the Rural Studio in, in the South somewhere. It's, there's an architect named Samuel Maccabee that, that came out of And all the students there all have to build their senior project is they build a building for people. And they have to design it and build it. And I think that's really important because a lot of architects, they don't have a lot of experience in like, okay, I put this in CAD. It's on a piece of paper. I specified this. I move on to the next thing. They're not aware of what they're asking someone physically to do. Right. Right. Yeah. The execution. And, and then that's where you story. get into a lot of conflict within this whole marketplace about contractors, designers, and then suppliers of different materials where none of the hands are talking to each other. And so you, you end up with fails because there's different expectations. Different people are coming to the conversations with different expectations. They're not necessarily able to hear what different people are telling them. And then also, so I think a lot of my job is to, is to kind of be the middle broker between the contractor and the architect and the customer or the end user to basically be able to help manage that expectation about what I'm going to produce or what they're going to get and how that's going to look. And that takes a lot of extra work, but I think <laughs> yeah. with, if you're going to work on bigger projects and you, and you want to do commercial work, then you're going to have a lot more things you need to do rather than have someone show up and buy 50 or hundred board feet. But right. again, then you can do bigger projects and you can sell more wood. So excellent. Well, you know, I, I think I think we've covered it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, there's no doubt we could we could go on for six hours here, but I think yeah. I mean this is this has just been amazing. Um, and we we were we're gonna have to talk again when the book comes out. Um, yeah. After I've read it, um, but uh, I think we we're we're getting there. And every time I have a conversation with with an architect or with a home builder these days, I'm bringing up you know, these locally sourced species and more and more often it's not a surprise, you know, three years ago, they'd be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And now, okay. um, many of these, many times when I have conversations, they have already done a project. Oh yeah, we did a project over here and that was really interesting. And the customer absolutely loved it. So it's becoming more in vogue, if you will, it's becoming more the norm. Yes. Um, I still think we have a long way to go. Um, but uh, it, it's it's very exciting. So let's do this. Let's let's give you some opportunity here. Um, your company is 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 Epilogue. You're out in Oregon. You are yep, a sawmill. Um, that's correct. Uh, you know how, how do people how do people find you? Portland. So uh, best way to find me or follow what I'm doing. I, I post a lot of stuff on Instagram. I do have that set up also on Facebook. That's Epilogue LLC is my day-to-day -day operation. To um, I try to... Underscore LLC things. is your handle, isn't it? Epilogue yeah, underscore that's LLC. Yeah. Epilogue underscore LLC. Uh, yes. So I saw dimensional hardwood lumber and some softwood lumber on occasion, and I know lots of other great mills around me. So if I don't have what you're looking for, I, I, I love being able to support lots of other folks uh, in the area. Uh, on my book, uh, Instagram page is Wood From The City. People can follow me there. Obviously, once I have physical copies of that, I'm going to be uh, a marketing machine, and I will be telling the world uh, about that as, as, as much as I can. And um, 
those and also my website is epiloglumber.com. People can uh, go on there. They can shoot me an email. I'm not, I am a by appointment only. Uh, if people do want to show up and just watch what's happening, uh, there's some of that opportunity available, but I, I, I can't do tours on a regular basis. I am um, a member of a member of the Urban Wood Network for the Oregon chapter. Uh, we're in, I'm in early conversations with um, Oregon Department of Forestry's Urban Forestry Division about having an event in October. So I think we're going to have an event at my mill site where people could come learn more. Um, and I'll, I'll have more about that coming up. So um, Instagram is the, is the best place to, to follow me, though, or, or shoot me an email if you want to get on a, a list of something. So when the book's out and obviously um, I'll, I'll have more updates here in another couple of months. But and Shannon, hey, by the way, I, I want to say I really, really, really appreciate your expertise and your podcast. I've listened oh, to a lot of folks and you're you're a unique person. You you're really trying to bridge a lot of that's a nice way to put it a unique person <laughs> yeah right yeah right i don't know it's like well i'm not personally so if anybody knows me very well you have to be a little bit crazy if you want to if you want to do this full time but I, I what i really love about your podcast is you're talking a lot about a lot of different parts of this forestry system and I think the more people can think holistically, like if you're a woodworker, go learn about uh, botany and plants and yeah. be able to walk through the woods in your location and understand the ecosystem that's in place and how those things function. If you're a plant person, uh, a lot of urban forestry people are really freaked out about the idea of lumber and it, it shouldn't be something that's a, that's a negative thing. So right. I, I feel like when people can think from a systems approach to understanding trees, forestry, and also building materials and building sciences is how we can start to shift all of these converses, conversations. Um, and I also think like you can be uh, super Trumpy, super right wing. You can be a lefty. You can be somewhere in the middle. We all use wood. And it's a great it's kind of a great way where I, I work with so many different people from different uh, political and philosophical backgrounds. And I love that I'm friends with all different kinds of people. and We could get along and work together. And I, and I think that doesn't get said, said enough. Um, and, and wood is a, is a, a resource and a commodity is, is a great equalizer where we can uh, maybe have a, a wild fiery debate in the parking lot about what we think about some topic of the day, but, but we also can work together on something where we have a shared interest. And, and I think that's really important. Yeah. We all agree on trees and they're important and, and how they're yeah. important to us may vary, but we all agree that they're important. Yeah. I think that's, yeah. I think that's fantastic. You said that earlier in, in, um, uh, getting that, uh, bill passed, you know, both sides of the aisle are for this. So, you know, finally, finally something that unifies this country instead of divides it. Maybe yeah. let's get behind wood. Um, whether it's urban yeah. or traditional, it doesn't matter. There, there's, there's a home for it. So, yeah. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that. Ultimately, I'm a guy who likes wood, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I like yeah. building with it. I like walking amongst it. You know, I like hiding under it on a hot day. You know, it's, it's fantastic stuff. So the more we can kind of expose the different aspects of it and all the, all the various industries that come from it. Um, you know, just talking to you reminds me that, uh, it's time to get like a landscape architect or a landscaper on, on the show to talk about the actual planting and caring of it. Um, there, there's that whole side of things as well. And they don't need to be separate. 
Um, and the more you get into working with wood, frankly, the more you start to respect it as a material and the more you want to understand how it grows and how to plant it and all that stuff. I, I say, I tell the same story when I started fly fishing, you know, uh, I, at first I just started to catch fish. The next thing you know, I was an entomologist and it was like studying the bugs and their, their, their life cycles. And, uh, yeah. But, but then that's what makes it so enjoyable to exactly. go out onto a river yeah. and, and you're, 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 part of a, of a larger story. And so for me, like walking through a forest, like whether it's like, Oh, these are, this is a 20 year old stand of red alder. And, uh, this land was cleared and they did, they just let this grow back. And over here, these are 50 year old dog firs. And like, Oh, down here, this is a three or 400 year old tree. Um, or these are elm trees planted in Portland in the 1930s. Cause that's when that became popular out here. And so the more you, you know about that instead of uh, walking through a city with a pretty minimal story. So like if I look at like, oh, there's a dandelion growing in the crack of the sidewalk. Well, they release this calcium as a deep taproot. It's starting to try and break that up and allow other things to grow in that spot. So you understand like, oh, the clover's fixing nitrogen, just like this black locust tree is. And you start to hear this narrative and this story, and it's the same, like what kind of trout are in the stream this time of year? Well, out here we have different runs of salmon. So is our sockeye coming in? Where are they going to the Wenatchee Lake? Or is this a spring Chinook headed for the Snake River? Or, you know, there's all these different things. And then how does that relate to the, the trees that, are in your local environment uh so it, it becomes like this really layered mosaic and i think you know that's what everybody had to know about in the past and we've gotten very good at streamlining all these systems so you can go bloop on amazon and a thing shows up that's really complicated to make as a one-off and, it, and it, i love all that stuff though i'm not a luddite but being able to connect uh with the natural world that does exist like walk around your street what are the trees on your street can you identify five to ten trees and it just makes your day more interesting i agree i mean i just grade i grade trees all day as i drive down the road which maybe isn't the safest thing but uh, <laughs> i'm like oh that's a saw log that's 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 pull <laughs> so i've uh, i've had yeah. that i've had that same conversation or more importantly the rolled eyes from my wife as I, as we drive down or as i just drove across the country and we had to pull over to identify certain trees in the middle of the Kansas prairie yeah i, I get in trouble that way was it was it, was it hedge apple was it like a osage orange or what was it what was that? Uh, <laughs> i saw a couple osage uh, saw some really nice walnut in Kansas actually i was surprised by yeah that. there is there's actually some amazing walnut in the in, in the midwest that people people don't realize a lot of it a lot of uh, um, East, eastern black walnut actually comes from from those areas but well, thank you, Shannon. I really, I really appreciate your time. People can uh, reach out, look me up. Um, yeah, and I'll, I'll post links to your site and your Instagram and everything uh, in the show notes because I think I think people want want to follow, if nothing else, just to follow when, when the book releases because I think I think it will be the handbook um, that we're going to need to embrace. And and thank you for just that immense effort to to pull all that together. I'm really looking forward to it, and uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thanks, Shannon. All right. We'll take care and we'll talk some other time. All right. See you, David.